so like mission in the world, this whole thing, it's all wrapped up in other things that society tells us to do or the economy forces us to do that are not necessarily what your mission in the world is. Like it's partly that surrogate mission, you know, the proxy for what your real mission is that we get trapped in sometimes money and status and stuff. And so are you really making the choice between family and serving your mission in the world? Or are you making the choice between family and this false thing, the substitute for your mission in the world, which you can never get enough of because it isn't actually your mission in the world. So it could be that the tension that you speak of is a symptom of a disconnect with your actual mission. Like, yeah, this thing that you're leaving your family for, is that actually your mission in the world? Where is that coming from, the desire to go out and do that? And maybe it is. I don't know. But maybe there's other things wrapped up in it too. Welcome to Men This Way, the podcast for every man who seeks to live his deepest purpose in life, who's committed to showing up fully and giving his unique gifts to the world. Because if not you, then who? I'm your host and fellow journeyman, Brian Reeves. Brian with a Y, Reeves. Men, this way. Are you ever discouraged by your obviously limited impact on the world? Do you struggle to find purpose? Or perhaps you have purpose, yet struggle to balance that and being present with your loved ones? Are you sure you're even connected to what you really care about? In this episode, my guest again is Charles Eisenstein, and we plumb the depths of these questions and more for useful insights to make a meaningful difference in your life. This is actually part two of the last episode that Charles and I recorded together. I think I have a man crush on Charles. His brilliant mind is plugged into a vision of the world that I and so many others ache to live in. Charles graduated from Yale University with degrees in mathematics and philosophy and is the author of five books, including The Ascent of Humanity and The More Beautiful World Our Hearts Know Is Possible. In this episode, which is a continuation of the last episode, which should be the episode right before this, so you should be able to hear them back to back pretty easy, our core exploration is what it means and looks like to have real impact on the world and the struggles we tend to face in the face of wanting to create impact. We talk about purpose, which I've covered in an earlier episode myself as well, the episode titled, It Hurts to Live Your Purpose but it hurts more not to. Definitely check that earlier episode out just a few episodes ago. But in this episode with Charles, we talk again more about purpose and an interesting way to look at the unpredictable consequences of saying yes or no to any given opportunity. All that and much more. And at the end of this episode, I do something a little different and dive deeper into two of my own key takeaways from this conversation with Charles Eisenstein. So be sure to stay to the end of this episode of Men This Way. All right, let's dive. Charles Eisenstein, thank you. Welcome back to Men This Way. Thank you for saying this. Hey, yeah, thank you. 
And I know you just got off a red-eye flight. Uh, we were talking a little bit about that before we hit record. You look great, man, for having traversed a continent <laughs> in uh, the evening. How are you feeling? I feel fine. Yeah. I think the pilot did most of the work. I just you know, <laughs> tried to sleep. Most of the work. I just, uh, yeah. Not all of it. I actually went to an aviation school in my... Um, I was in the military, the Air Force, and went right. to Embry-Riddle Aeronautical University. So I have a lot of pilot buddies. Uh-huh. Um, to be quite honest with you, it kind of frightens me that some of these guys are the ones flying our jumbo jets these days. I don't think I need to hear that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I don't. we'll, we'll yeah. keep that behind the closed cockpit door where it belongs. Yeah. Well, good. Well, again, thank you so much for saying yes. I'm really excited to dive into this part two of our conversation. And what I want to explore today is... You know, this idea, this fear, this concern that that certainly I've been lived with, and I know a lot of our listeners will be able to relate to this, that concern that, you know, how can I possibly matter in the big scheme of things, right? You think of just voting, for example. I mean, what are we, 300 plus million people in this country? Not that all of us vote, but the idea that our vote counts, you know, what is changing a light bulb going to do? in the totality of all of the plastic being dumped in the ocean and, and all of that. And that's the subject of our exploration today. And I know this is a real big theme that you explore throughout your work. So I just want to, you know, stop there and kind of let you take it from here. There's a lot we'll discover, you know, separation, interbeing, all of that. But let me just stop there. How can I possibly matter in the big scheme of things? Yeah, we are given a theory of change and a story of the world in which nothing you do matters, really. I mean, you can tell yourself, well, if everybody votes or if everybody recycles or if everybody does whatever, then it will make a difference. And so I need to be part of that. So I'm part of the solution, not part of the problem. Right. Like you can say that, but what we are told implicitly is that it doesn't matter because if I don't do it and everybody else does it, then we'll be fine. You know, my vote doesn't matter. As long as, as enough people vote for the right person, then it doesn't matter. And if I do it and nobody else does it, that doesn't matter either. Right. There's a minuscule chance that it's going to come down to just you if you think right. in, in that way. <laughs> right. So, yeah. Possibly and is, minuscule and possibly so. Yeah. Yeah. And that is a burden yeah. to go through life with that secret knowledge that what I do doesn't actually matter. Yeah. And then on the other hand, there's the feeling of something mattering. And it could be something usually, and that feeling usually is, has little to do with anything political or anything on a grand scale. Usually it has something to do, it's something interpersonal. It's some time you spent with your child. You know, it's, it's a moment you had with your mother. It's some kind of, some time when you were there for somebody. And it feels at that moment that this is the most important thing I could be doing right now. So we have a feeling about what is significant that contradicts our received logic about what is significant. Our received logic says only if it can scale up and go viral Mm -hmm. and make a big impact. And let's look at some numbers to measure the impact. Only then is it really significant. That's the logic we're given. And I think our hearts recognize that as a false logic. But this is a difficult situation that we're in because heart and mind are in conflict then. So I I have done a lot of thinking about how to reconcile this. 
I remember kind of a number of years ago, I've been in the, the entertainment, transformational entertainment space and as a manager, as a creator, all, all the producer of events, all that. And I remember a number of years ago, people would come to me and say, yeah, so we're making a viral video and it's going to do this and this. And I'm like, how do you, you look, you don't know if you're making a viral video, number one, until it's actually viral. Right. And even then, you know, again, back on my mind, what difference does it make? Yeah, even if it does go viral. <laughs> even if it does. Right. And yeah, that's a good point. I think that videos that are designed to go viral actually have less impact mm-hmm. because they have an insincerity built into them on some mm-hmm. level. Mm-hmm. You know, I'm, am I making this just because I want it to be great? Mm-hmm. Or is it because I have an ulterior motive mm-hmm. to have lots of people look at it? That's really huge what you're saying right there. Because I can see and, you know, there's so much strategy in my head anyway, when I'm thinking, I mean, just today I was uploading a, a video about relationships. I do a lot of relationship work and I'm helping couples create connection. And I was uploading an older video from, I created it for Facebook and now I'm uploading it to YouTube and I didn't have captions for the YouTube format. And I'm thinking, God, you know, everyone says if you have captions on your video, so many more people will watch it. And I remember feeling stress around that in my body. Like it's not going to have the impact if I don't add captions. And then there's that part of me that says, man, give up on that. Some of the most viral videos, the most impactful videos didn't have a damn caption on it. Right. Yeah. And if you have something that's designed to be viral, like Mm. this insincerity thing, what is going viral actually is insincerity. Mm. Yeah. And it's just adding on to the pile of data, Mm. you know, pile of data. Yeah. And it's not changing anything. (laughs) But so, yeah, so let me just sit with that for a second, Charles. Let me just take, really take that in. You know, that's, that's, a, that's a tension in my being often. So that, this is so helpful. This feels really good. Thank you. Well, I want to offer an alternative, though. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Basically, so I'm not saying, um, I'm not saying don't vote. Mm-hmm. I mean, I might say that, but that would be a whole other conversation. Um, yeah. So right now, I'm not saying don't vote. I'm not saying don't do anything collective. Don't do anything where mass participation is necessary. Only focus on the personal. I'm not saying that. Mm-hmm. What I'm saying is that we need to source that action from another place rather than some kind of arithmetic and probability that it's going to make an impact or some ambition to make sure that it scales up. Because that puts us into competition with everybody else who's trying to make their thing scale up. Yeah. And we end up replicating the same thing that we're trying to change. Yeah. Like everyone competing for platform and mailing lists and stuff. So yeah. the alternative for me is to go back to relationship. So if I'm going to compost my things, compost my food, for example, and use it to fertilize my garden, it's not because I'm saying, well, if everybody did that, that would sequester X tons of carbon into the ground per year and, you know, make a dent on climate change. I'm doing it because I have a personal relationship with that apple core, Mm -hmm. with the soil, and I'm giving a gift to the soil. And that feels really good. Like it has a little bit of that feeling of significance that Mm -hmm. I have when I'm there for a friend, you know? Right. And yeah, so voting... I mean, I have a lot to say about that, um, but you know, by voting, we kind of legitimize a system that actually disempowers us. Uh, but that would be a whole other conversation. But I'll say, like, you know, if you feel really good about performing this ritual in support of a person who 
speaks to, to something in you. Yeah. Like trust that feeling. You don't have to justify it by, well, will it make a difference for me? Yeah. Well, what I'm really touched by, and maybe this is a good segue into this conversation, is what I really get as I've been spending time with your work these past few weeks and days and this story of separation, the old story of separation and the new story of interbeing, and particularly how in the story of separation, where we're all discrete individual parts, the only way to create change is to apply force. Right. The Newtonian way of things, Hmm. create force, apply pressure. Mm -hmm in order to create change. And me, you know, look, I got 80,000 people following me on Facebook. I have, you know, a few thousand on Instagram. My email list is, you know, 20 some thousand people. I have a, I've had millions of people read my blogs, but not today. You know, that was a few years ago. And so there's a part of me that's like, well, I'm not Beyonce. I'm not, you know, some of these other idiots who have these massive platforms that can can just say one thing and create a force on the world. I have a minuscule amount of force in the great scheme of things. And there is a, almost a tendency to hopelessness mm-hmm. in a sense. And yet in the new story of interbeing, change is created through a whole different mechanism. Right. So illuminate that. Can you pull that apart for us? Yeah. Um, so interbeing basically says that you're not separate from the world, that what happens inside of you mirrors what happens outside of you, that you are a holographic miniature of all that is, and that there is a mysterious, intimate connection between yourself, what you think, what you feel, what you do, and what is happening in the world. I wouldn't want to simplify it to say that your beliefs create your reality, so change your beliefs and reality will change. There's um, a couple of big problems with, with that formula. But let's just say that there is an intimate, mysterious relationship. And therefore, the things that we do on a small scale send a ripple out that has unimaginable consequences because the change that happens in a small sphere induces or participates in a change happening on a much bigger sphere. So I like to use Rupert Sheldrake's formulation for this Mm -hmm. called morphic resonance or morphogenesis, which says that any change that happens in one place creates a field of change that allows the same change to happen more easily somewhere else, which means that time that you were there for your friend and because that was important even and you sacrificed your busy schedule and your practical selfish things for that moment, like Mm -hmm. that creates a field where more and more people do that. Mm -hmm. Maybe a field where people sacrifice what looks like their economic interests in order to protect and restore the environment, for example, like it's part of that. Mm -hmm. And by making that choice with your friend, with your mother, with your child at that moment, you're basically declaring, here's the kind of universe I want to live in. And you could say that the universe then comes into alignment with that, Mm -hmm. or you enter a reality in which that is true. Mm -hmm. Or you could look at it as a prayer yeah, uh, and understand the most powerful prayers are ones that include action, Mm. where you made a sacrifice that showed how much you care about this thing. So part of the story of interbeing says that, that we're always being witnessed that we're not alone here. We're not the only conscious beings, Mm. not the only subjects, but that we're surrounded by beings. We're in a world that is pregnant with being. So 
prayers are heard and our actions are powerful, even when they're invisible. Yeah. Yeah. And how much do you want it? You know, how much do you want a healed world? Yeah. Do you want it enough to be in service to it, even when your rational mind can't say how it's going to work, yeah. but you can feel it? Yeah. 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 You know, I've made the distinction in my life already. I mean, I've been on this planet for 44 wild and amazing years and and I've definitely experienced you know how hard I work is not really correlated to how much abundance I experience how well strategized I am does not correlate to how much impact I experience my work having in the world in fact the most you know my my work my blogs were were really the most successful when I was just having a good time writing uh-huh. and I noticed in different times, you know, the success that created put me in a mindset also of, okay, now I have a lot of work to do. There's a lot of energy to manage. If I want to scale this, you know, all the strategy, how can I maximize all, all when, as soon as I, you know, rushed into my head and now I have a coaching practice and a lot of, it's a lot of moving parts to manage, you know, that sort of, well, you know, my writing became less fun, mm-hmm. for example you know, the work became less fun. And, you know, I had literally millions of people a day reading my articles and at the height of just my joy for writing. And as that got replaced with the burden of <laughs> managing what happened, you know, that subsided significantly. And, um, you know, life became like, I've had to just sort of do that dance for many years. Mm-hmm. So, you know, as you describe this work. And, and what, a question that I have for you in this too is, because I think there's a big distinction here. You talk a lot about this too, distinguishing between the heart and the mind. You know, my mind says I have to, there's all this strategizing I have to do to get the numbers, right. to make the numbers work, to scale, to do whatever, whatever I think I want the outcome to be. And yet my heart is saying, stop, create space, let there be space, meditate more, create more. Yeah. Don't worry about answering every single email or even if your assistant answers every email. Don't, don't, that's not what's really important. You know, but how do I know? How do I know what, what my mind is saying versus what my heart is saying? You, know, you talk about feeling. You feel something. You just know it. Well, but help me distinguish that. How do you distinguish that yeah. between heart and mind? Okay. Well, for one thing, the solution is not to ignore the mind and just listen to the heart. Yeah. The solution is to bring them back into alignment. And that's what I'm yeah. trying to do by offering this alternative logic of interbeing, you know, of prayer, of morphogenesis. Mm-hmm. Because then it's like a permission slip to trust the heart. And as far as like, what does that feel like? It's just like, what do you care about? Mm-hmm. Um, what do you want to do? What feels exciting? Mm-hmm. What feels alive? Yeah, It requires going against a lot of our programming, which says desire is bad mm-hmm. because you're bad because you're selfish because you're maximizer of economic self-interest mm-hmm. and no pain, no gain, et cetera, et cetera. Like this distrust of the body is part of the conquest of nature, overcoming matter, overcoming the flesh. So that's some programming that we have to undo to be able to listen. Like, what do I want to do? Like, what do I really want to do? Like, we might not even have access to that because our authentic desires have been suppressed for so long yeah. that we don't even recognize them and they've been overlaid by inauthentic desires. Yeah. There's so much in the way. Cravings. Yeah. Yeah. So 
I think the path back starts with really getting serious about what feels good mm-hmm. before, during, and after you do it. And then to be like, I want more of that. Yeah. And, you know, if you're honest with yourself, spending four hours playing video games or watching porn or something like that, it doesn't feel that good. Yeah. You know, it doesn't even feel like good during and it doesn't feel good after. So what if you say, okay, I'm just going to allow that feeling to become a data point in my automatic decision-making apparatus. Not going to say, oh, I can't believe I wasted that time. What's wrong with me? And try to threaten yourself into not doing it again Mm -hmm. or to bribe yourself into not doing it again by saying, if I quit cold turkey, then I'm going to, then I get to like myself. Then I'm a good person. You know, that doesn't work. Right. But if you trust, like this is trust to trust the bad feelings to write themselves into who you are so that you make choices in the future from a different place, the place that incorporates that entire experience. Yeah. So this is part of the recovery of authentic desire. Yeah. Yeah. And how I experience it. So what I hear you saying as well, and a lesson that I've been actively engaged in and, and see if you agree with this or this is in alignment with what you're saying, it's really restoring the mind or I don't know if this ever was the case, but I'll just say restoring the mind in service of the heart's wisdom. Because, you know, the mind has its place. It, it, it helps us figure out which way, you know, to cross the street, if there's a car coming, not coming. And, you know, my brain needs to, I can't just feel whether there's a car coming or not. I guess I could, but my brain can tell me really quickly, yeah, there's a car coming, don't cross. Right. Just as an example. But for example, again, what I'm experiencing, you know, I've been telling my partner for the last year, I crave space. I have so much stuff, so much busy work on my plate. And, and it's the consequence of a lot of success in, in doing what I loved. And I crave so much space to get back to that. Mm. And yet, again, my mind wants to tell me, yeah, you don't have time to meditate. You don't have time to really write and all the space that it takes for you to write. You don't have time for that. (laughs) You have to manage your coaching practice. You have to, there's income that you need to bring in to pay for this, to pay for that, to be successful, to have more impact. And, And yet, so, but my heart is telling me space, man, slow down, space, say no more than you say yes. And be in that space. And really, my mind's job is to figure out simply how to create that space. Mm-hmm. Is that a fair way of... That sounds sensible to me. Yeah, I mean, because like you're saying, I mean, I, I experience the same thing, you know, that mm-hmm. my mind is working against my heart. Mm-hmm. So I think the mind needs to be retrained a little bit and immersed in a different way of thinking so that it can be the ally of the heart. Yeah. So how do you then, we'll just break it down like this is another way of, of asking maybe the same kind of thing, but how do you know what to say yes to and what to say no to? <sighs> I wish I had a formula for that. Mm. Some things are just an obvious yes, mm-hmm. but you know, sometimes the yes is coming from not the best part of myself. So mm. I'm actually. And like what bit, part, what part itself of that might be then? Oh, maybe the part that, you know, is ambitious yeah, or associates it with something glamorous, you know, or, you know, maybe there's an attractive woman involved, mm-hmm. you know, and mm-hmm. like, yeah, I want to go to that. Like, even though I'm not going to create an romantic entanglement, like still like that, that programming is there. <laughs> sure. 
I think, yeah, that primal need for status for, you know, just the, that's been cultivated, I suppose, in man, especially for eons status. We have more reproductive opportunities if we have more status, if we have more resources, if we have more. Yeah. Well, so, and then sometimes when I'm like really reluctant to say yes to something and I finally do it, I'm like, man, I didn't listen to my no, I shouldn't have done this, but I've committed to it. Uh, then I go there and it's amazing. Mm, interesting. So this all to say that maybe I'm not even the person to ask, mm. but I can say that the false yes that might come from a wounded place, it shows me, you know, when I go and the results are unsatisfying, it helps reveal what wound is generating that false yes mm-hmm. and points to an unmet need. So it's not a bad thing to conquer in myself, Mm -hmm. but it's to recognize, oh, you know, I wouldn't have said yes to that if I had more self-respect, you know, and craving the, this one, you know, maybe I said yes to this because it seemed like really legit, you know, really prestigious and I would get respect, but where's the self-respect? Like if I had that, so why don't I have that? You know, and this, so it's a really compassionate way of looking at myself. What are the needs that are unmet? Yeah. And so then it becomes a path of healing. And so the yes and the no are a side effect mm. of doing this healing. Like I get more clarity and precision in my yes and my no when I have met these unmet needs and healed these wounds that keep me scurrying around and anxious and confused. I really get that. Early in my relationship with my fiance, I said yes to a professional opportunity that was really hurtful to her. And it was something we both really struggled with this at the time. And I felt like if I say no to this, the resentment in me that I am going to be so, it will be bad for our relationship if I say no. Right. Because of what I feared would be bred in me from that. And yet saying yes <laughs> at all other negative consequence in terms of our trust, our, it, it was really hurtful. And so I said yes. And I went and, and I had this professional experience and, um, and it was both enlivening. It was invigorating and also ultimately so disappointing in terms of what I thought it would bring me. Yeah. I mean, there could be a lot there though. Like, In a relationship, I think that there are thresholds through which we establish our sovereignty. Mm -hmm. And it's like my choice to make whether or not you like it. Yeah. And even if it's a mistake, at least it was my mistake. Yeah. So I think that the need to establish that could even be greater than the need to make a good choice in a professional way. Or, you know, a lot of us men, we have this, this, keep mommy happy programming mm-hmm. that then gets transferred onto our partner and it's poison to a relationship, yeah. you know, to gain our approval from a woman. Yeah. It's like we haven't grown up. So. Yeah. Yeah. That experience was actually, again, I know it was really hurtful and it's one of those things that in a way, had I known how it would play out, I would not have said yes, but I, I needed it to happen that way to get the lesson and also to see, wow, yeah, my ambition, my hope, look at all that I, you know, as you said earlier, that yes, really coming from kind of a wounded, frightened place and in having the experience of it, it actually, it took us a while to heal from that, Sylvie and I, to really repair Mm -hmm. that experience between us. But I felt I was infused with a deeper self-awareness 
that really has enabled me to make better choices that are in service of my heart. And Sylvie is an aspect of my heart. This relationship, my work is an aspect of my heart. And so it's, I feel like that really gave me a, a depth of clarity that I didn't have before that experience. Uh-huh. So it is kind of paradoxical in a way. I, I think what you're pointing at is like the yes or no almost wasn't even really the point. It was, there was something really big and beautiful to learn here. Mm-hmm. And it didn't happen in the way I thought it would. Mm-hmm. In fact, quite the opposite. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it was a failure in a professional context, total waste of time, really, uh-huh. professionally yeah. speaking. Yet what it allowed for Sylvie and I, even though it was painful and difficult, the deepening for our relationship to experience and myself became really priceless. Mm. So yeah, what to say yes and what to say no to. It'll be interesting to see what listeners take from that. So thank you for your honesty. Let's talk about purpose, Charles. Mm. All right. Because again, in the manosphere, this word purpose, it's a core kind of tenet of our inquiry. What's my purpose? And there's a lot of layers to this. One of my teachers, David Data, you know, he talks, there's just a lot of nuances and layers to purpose. But I think the question that we're exploring here, right? How can I possibly matter? You know, what's my purpose? What am I doing here? And I, so when I say the word purpose, you know, what comes up for you? What does that word mean to you, if anything? It means something I care about more than myself. Something that I'd be willing to, even sacrifice my life for if necessary. Mm-hmm. And in a way, something I do sacrifice my life for, something that's more important than, you know, if I have to choose between financial security and this thing, I would choose for this thing because I care so much about it. Mm-hmm. And in the end, I will, you know, grow old and die. I could have been trying to maximize my health this whole time, but I'm devoting some to, there's something I care about more than myself, basically. Yeah. Yeah. And what that is can change over a lifetime. And it is often transferred onto surrogates for purpose in this culture that are kind of social markers, uh, money and status and things like that, that don't actually meet the deep need for purpose. Mm -hmm. They are a substitute for that. So men who have fallen victim to this substitution will seek more and more and more of that thing yeah. of money or power or status because they do not have a close connection with their purpose. Mm-hmm. So that's an addiction, you know, something that seems to meet a need, but doesn't really meet it. That's an addiction. Mm-hmm. You need more and more of it. So that said, you know, like, yeah, David data or mankind project, you know, you go in there and they're like, okay, what's your mission? You know, mm-hmm. if you can't say what it is, well, then you must not have one. You must be an uninitiated man. Mm-hmm. But I think that, in fact, for me, at least, my purpose is bigger than I can articulate. Mm-hmm. And I can articulate it pretty well. I'm good with words. Mm-hmm. I can say it's to serve the crystallization of a new story on Earth, a new and ancient story of interbeing, et cetera, et cetera. I, I can articulated pretty convincingly, but I have a feeling in the back of my mind that I'm not really doing it honor, mm-hmm. that I'm through my concepts, making it into something less than what it is. Mm-hmm. And it's, it's, it's more of a felt presence that calls me in certain crux moments. Mm-hmm. And when I remember myself in those moments, then I know what it is. Yeah. Yeah. 
And I think there's an interesting distinction here as well that I believe through your work, you really emulate and demonstrate well. And it's, and it's, here's the tension. Here's the confusion that I think a lot of men, my, myself, even in that decision that I spoke about early in my relationship to do this professional thing, a lot of us men, we live with this tension between, okay, if I'm going to be on purpose, I'm going to be connected to that huge, whatever that mission, I can't even articulate. But yet I have a family, I have a wife or a husband, or I just have an intimate partner, I have kids, I have these demands, these responsibilities. And it seems, you know, this even shows up in our pop culture, you know, the movie Mission Impossible, Tom Cruise's character, he has to literally choose between being married or saving the world. And naturally, he chooses to save the world because there, first off, there'd be no movie if he chose to be married, <laughs> at least not that movie, be a different movie. And an interesting movie, actually. But that's the friend of mine said this recently, just within the last few weeks, I heard him say this. If I have to choose between being successful at my work or being successful in my relationship, I will choose being successful in my work. So, right. Well, there's so much in that. And so, you know, I guess the question is, well, I'll make an observation and then, you know, I'll, and then I'll ask the question, but the observation that I have of you and your work and, and how it shows up for you, Charles, is that the resolution of that tension is actually through loving your family, through being present with your child, your wife. But yet you still have, for example, this podcast interview, me asking you to come on here. This is time you can't spend with your child who's humming in the next room. So how do you navigate that tension? Well, First, I'll say that all of our different missions and purposes come down to one form or another of service to life. Mm, service to life, yeah. Yeah, that's why we're here. And especially, and of course, this is a vast generalization, but most women potentially have a very clear way to be in service to life, which is to give birth to a child, to nurse a child, to raise a child. And you know, we men can participate in that as part of our service to life. But for most of us, that service to be complete, it needs something else, something beyond the realm of just the family, Mm -hmm. but service to the whole tribe and beyond. Mm -hmm. And as far as like how, you know, I don't have a, a formula to distinguish, you know, in any given moment, do I choose this or do I choose that? The call of these different functions that I serve as a man, you know, as husband, father, worker in the world, the call ebbs and flows. You know, sometimes one is stronger, sometimes another is stronger. Yeah. At one stage of life, you know, it might be one. And women have this too. Yeah. But maybe even more pronounced, you know, where the childbearing years might be really, the call might be really strongly to raise the most beautiful children as best I know how and pass on my love of life through them. And then when, yeah, and then you're, there you are, 52, you know, your kids are growing up 55, you know, and the grandkids haven't come yet, you know, and like a lot of women at that stage, they develop a really strong mission. And they're some of the most powerful change makers out there, like the, yeah, like the postmenopausal women. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So there's an archetype for that even. So yeah, as far as like, how do I distinguish? I really don't know how I make those choices. I wish I could give a wise answer to that. Uh, do you ever feel like maybe you're out of balance in one way or the other? Yeah. Sometimes I feel like I'm traveling too much, but you know, if I'm away from my work for too long, I, I feel stagnant. Yeah. It's not just that I feel guilty that I'm not doing enough. It's not that. Yeah. It's that I feel, I start to wither. 
Yeah. Yeah. Like that. Yeah. Well, as you know, as you're just talking about this, I'm just sort of seeing visions in my head, just again, evolutionary, just through time and the way civilization has been organized and that generally speaking, it was us men who, I mean, our bodies are bigger. We defended the tribe from outside forces. It was, we tended to be the ones structuring society. Obviously it's not this black and white, but and I guess, again, I didn't live throughout history. I'm just going on what the stories I know. But, you know, women generally were tending to the heart of raising children and being kind of inside the protective circle that... Right. Men on the periphery, women in the interior. Yeah. Yeah. Men being more expendable than right. women, basically. And yeah. thereby... And this is a basic instinct, you know, like yeah. you step in front of your beloved and take the bullet. Yeah. This actually happens, you know. Sure, absolutely. Because what's the kid going to do without, and this is a deep programming, I think a deep biological programming. It might not be politically correct for me to say it, but yeah. it's true for me anyway. And a lot of men resonate with that. Like we're kind of more expendable. Yeah. Not that we are expendable, uh, or useless, but, but you know, if you had to make a choice and more mobile, <laughs> I mean, if you want to go back to the biology like the, or the you know, hunter-gatherer societies, but yeah, I mean, looking at Stella, you know, like she is not going to do a lot of fast running. This is your wife? Yeah. Uh, at this point, you know, mm-hmm. maybe when she was a teenager. Yeah. But mm-hmm. not when she's matronly, you know. Mm-hmm. So anyway, I mean, but, you know, I'm a little bit wary of sourcing too much our ideas of masculinity and femininity by looking at undergatherer culture. I and mean, there's definitely some some things we can get there. But there's also just so much diversity in in indigenous cultures that you can pretty much make any argument you want if you pick the right ones mm-hmm. to buttress your argument. Yeah. So I definitely like do pay attention to it, but well, I just, I, I mean, I just noticed that there seems to be a, again, nothing is all or all one or the other, but I do see that men tend to live more consistently with that tension between how do I execute my mission in the world, whatever the hell that means and be present for my family. And usually men tend to err on the side of, and I know I'm making big statements here, but men tend to, in, the, in the, all the men's work and the, the coaching and the men's groups, everything, the, the conversation is overwhelmingly, you know, how do I be strong and powerful in the world and still show up for my family? Whereas I see in women tend to have much less concern about the, how do I be strong and powerful in the world? And it's almost like flipped. How do, you know, Marianne Williamson said something to a young woman once, a young woman in an audience, Marion was doing questions and answers. And the young woman said, you know, I really want to make an impact on the world. I'm an activist and, and I have a three-year-old child and I want to be a model. How do I, you know, how do I show up in the world so as to teach my child, you know, about activism? Like, how do I do that? And Marion gave an answer that was, I thought was brilliant. It was surprising to me, but yet I was so glad to hear it. And she said, are you kidding me? You're a three-year-old child. Be a parent. That's the most activism you could possibly be doing right now. Raise that child. Yeah, totally. So I think that this question, there's a bit of a false choice here. Okay. There's a lot of, so like mission in the world, this whole thing Mm -hmm. is all wrapped up in other things that society tells us to do or the economy forces us to do Mm -hmm. that are not necessarily what your mission in the world is. Yeah. Like it was, it's partly that surrogate mission you know, the proxy for what your real mission is mm-hmm. that 
we get trapped in sometimes money and status and stuff. Yeah. And so are you really making the choice between family and serving your mission in the world? Or are you making the choice between family and this false thing, the substitute for your mission in the world, which you can never get enough of because it isn't actually your mission in the world. Right. Yeah. So it could be that the tension that you speak of is a symptom of a disconnect with your actual mission. Like, yeah, this thing that you're leaving your family for, is that actually your mission in the world? Where is that coming from? The desire to go out and do that. And maybe it is. I don't know. But maybe there's other things wrapped up in it too. And it's not like necessarily your fault. I mean, the economy today is structured to be at odds with many, many men's mission in the world. The thing that we care most about deep in our heart, our best service to life, there may not be a lot of money in that. Mm -hmm. What puts bread on the table could be something that feels unaligned, that feels in conflict with your mission. And this is a dilemma that you can't wave a magic wand to make it go away. Mm -hmm. But I think that the progress out of that dilemma starts with recognizing the dilemma and the enormity of it. Yeah. So what would you say to the man who's, and I'm thinking of one of my very, very closest friends who is sort of in that dilemma. There's, he has work that does feel aligned for him. He enjoys what he's contributing to. And he has a wife who doesn't work right now, who's very capable of working, but right now she's chosen not to. And they have two small kids, you know, five and eight years old. And, and he's in that conversation that, that, that really there's a lot of fear in it, that if I were really to drop this thing that, that works, it's okay. I feel good about it. I know I'm contributing to something that's meaningful to me. And yet there is a deeper call for another exploration. What do you say to that man? Hmm. Well, one thing, I mean, there's no shame in doing something just to feed your family. It's okay. Yeah. You know, that's honorable to feed your family. And if it is seriously in conflict with your mission in the world, your purpose for being here, it will cause anguish. And maybe at some point the anguish is so great that you make Tom Cruise's choice. And you decide to go on Mission Impossible. (laughs) But be sure uh, where that's coming from. Did Tom Cruise go on that? And okay, this is ridiculous in the context of this grossly simplistic movie. But did he make that choice because he was actually going to save the world? Or is it because the mission appealed to his vanity? So to access the caring part uh, so that we can be honest about why we do things. And then the natural next step might become apparent. That doesn't necessarily mean throwing it all to the wind and abandoning your family, but it feels a little bit daring. And maybe when you start that investigation, you're like, yeah, um, I am not that aligned with my work. I don't, maybe 10% of it, I feel, is part of my mission. And the other, I'm just doing to feed my family. And boy, that really sucks. But to drop the pretense, see a lot of men, they have a pretense that this is their mission because it's painful to admit that it's not. Yeah. And I'm saying it's okay to admit that it's not and to keep doing it, but at least to be aware of the real reasons you're doing it. Mm -hmm. Because then those reasons, they can be completed and and you might be able to meet them in some other way. Yeah. Yeah. And what honesty. Yeah. Yeah. And in that honesty, what I'm hearing, I think of um, uh, Rilke's invitation to live the question, Mm -hmm. live in the question. 
which is essentially an invitation to, okay, you don't have the answer right now. That's okay. But to really live in, in, in the question, I think what you're describing, really just be honest with yourself first about where is this, is this really in alignment with your mission, your, the mission of your heart versus just your mind and, and living inside of that question. Well, what is my mission? What is my real work? What is, and I think you used earlier the word prayer. Uh huh. And that there's an opportunity to be in that prayer as well to, you know, for many years when I wasn't sure what to do with myself, I would, I would be in the shower and I would just be begging God, essentially praying, use me, use me. I'm available. Put me to work. Mm-hmm. <laughs> now, a lot of that was coming from my vanity, you know, give me something big to do, God. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but saying no to the invitations that I knew felt heavy yeah. or were just a no in my body. Another prayer might be, show me what I really care about. Mm, I like that. Show me what I really care about. Early in my coaching practice, I remember working with a few very wealthy clients in many homes around the world and, and businesses, and but yet we're so disconnected from their work. So disconnected from the meaning of what they were doing. And, and I remember as we explored this question, well, what would you do? In multiple cases, the answer was, well, right, I, I, nothing. I want to go do nothing. Yeah. I want to just get a little chicken farm on the outskirts of town and do nothing. That would be a good start. Yeah. To do nothing. Like creating space, like my yearning to create space. Yeah. In the midst of all the overwhelm, mm-hmm. create space so that what really wants to come through has the fertile ground, that empty space to come through. One more question for you, Charles, and then we'll conclude. In one of your videos, you concluded, it was an interview with someone else. You said this, stop trying to be a good person. What did you mean by that? Well, yeah, the goal of being a good person usually actually is the goal of seeming to yourself as that you are a good person, of looking like a good person to yourself, of meeting your own judgments of what a good person is. And usually appearing to other people as a good person. So coming from an internalized desire for approval. And that is a different goal than serving what you care about in the world. So which one do you serve? Mm -hmm. If you serve the appearance of being a good person, and it's an appearance that you believe in, but still, really it is to appear to yourself as a good person. If that's what you're serving, that's what you'll achieve but not something outside in the world yeah. necessarily. In fact, it might make you look like a better person if you fail at something in the world. Because mm. look how hard you tried. Look how much you sacrificed and suffered. What a martyr you are. So good. Is that what you really want though? Or would you rather achieve something in the world and maybe not even get the credit? Like, would you be willing to do that? So, I mean, I don't necessarily always give that advice to everybody, but yeah, a lot of times... A lot of us get caught up in this uh, vanity project. Mm -hmm. And in the end, you still don't feel like a good person. Yeah, (laughs) that's right. Well, what I'm really hearing is, again, it's like stop trying to be a good person and just be who you are here to be in the next moment. Do the thing that's in front of you to do that feel you feel deeply called to give yourself to. So I was recently at at Esalen and there was a sea otter there. Love Esalen. And and the sea otter was uh, kind of fish. So we caught this fish, and then the seagulls noticed it, uh, and they tried to take that fish. Mm-hmm. 
and the sea otter would dive down and come up somewhere else and the seagulls would find it and like keep trying to take the fish and take the fish. I don't know what happened in the end if the otter got away with the fish or not, but those seagulls were not interested in anything but getting that fish. Mm -hmm. They were totally unapologetic about that. And I'm not saying (laughs) to, to, you know, take as much as you can from everybody and so on. Uh, But there is still something to be learned there. Yeah. They were, they were on mission. Yeah. I remember I did a vision quest in the Southern mountains of Chile many, many years ago for three nights, four days in in the, in the, on the side of a mountain with no food, no water, no shelter. And I remember, you know, I, I went there expecting some huge epiphany, some vision, some big thing to happen. And nothing like that happened at all. What happened was I sat there for four days and just watched life happen all around me, watched the, the, the wind moved through the trees, watched an eagle fly above the canopy. I heard the wind through its wings. I watched a, remember I watched this beetle or this bee, something fly from towards me from the distance in the woods, pass me and keep going on to somewhere. God only knows where he was going. And I remember out of that experience, Charles, I remember thinking, wow, life works pretty well already. Mm-hmm. I don't actually have to do anything. Right. Apply force. That's right. What if you could do whatever you wanted without consequences, without punishment? Like, what if whether or not you're a good person, it doesn't matter in a way? Like, the rain falls on the just and the unjust alike, right? as the saying goes. Yeah. If that were true, would that change the way you live your life? I would like to live my life as if that were true. Yeah. Because... I believe that I'm already a good person. Yeah. I in the sense, that. like, mm-hmm. uh, my nature is to want to give. My nature is to want to serve life. That's what feels the best. Mm-hmm. When I really, I'm honest, you know. That's why I'm here. It's my nature. So if I trust that and let go of the reward and incentive system built into self-approval, what would happen? Yeah, I so feel you on that. I mean, I wouldn't, you know, the frightened mind or the mind locked up in the I have to get to survive. The separation story would say, well, God, I'm afraid I'd rob banks or I'd hurt people or I'd steal things. Or I'd... And that's not the truth of it at all for me. I don't want to hurt people. I would still show up. I might shift how I do my work a little bit. It might be it would be less income focused and more just again, I'd create that space even more so than I'm already creating it. Yeah. So I really get what you're pointing at there. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's being free. You know, it's like, on the one hand, not doing it for the money. On another hand, not doing it for the approval or even the self-approval. Yeah. I can do whatever I want. And trusting that what I want exists only in reference to a whole community. Yeah. It's not like the separate individual having these arbitrary desires. Right. But what I want changes when I'm in connection. Yeah. Because I am not a separate individual. Yeah. And the more I'm in connection, the more in touch with my totality I am. And my desires then change more and more into alignment with the well-being of all. Yeah. I've experienced that very, very viscerally in my relationship with Sylvie as we've been together, even just three and a half years. And that my evolution of, yeah, I am a separate individual. In fact, she told me a few times in the, the first few months of our relationship, she would say, gosh, you sure act like a single guy. Yeah. who is in relationship. 
And I didn't know what she was talking about. <laughs> I didn't get it because mm-hmm. I I'd, I'd, I'd proclaimed to the world this uh, my love for this woman. I even changed my Facebook status, Charles. Yeah. And she kept saying that. And then she broke up with me and we were apart for about three weeks. And in that apartness, there was, you know, everything in my life became meaningless. All the success, all the, all the stuff I had just felt utterly meaningless. And in that time, it felt like I, I just I broke open to a, a deeper level of connectedness and love mm-hmm. and heart, such that when we had an opportunity to to interact and, and come back together, I felt a connection to her and a love for her, and it's as if I encompassed her in my world in a way that she hadn't actually been welcomed right. previously. Mm-hmm. You know, this relationship has changed my way of being in the world because of that, the deepening of that experience. So. Yeah. You know, I feel that really viscerally what you're talking about. Yep. Yeah. Charles, one last thing in the part one of our interview, when I asked you to share a practice, the word ceremony came up for you. And I would love to just spend a moment talking about that. It was the, it was under the question. It was one of the five key takeaways inviting our listeners into a practice mm-hmm. that they could do for just the next seven days. And you gave a different practice in, in that part one, but the word ceremony came up and that's a really meaningful word to me, but I, I wanted to hear what you had to say about that before we conclude. Yeah, that's a big topic. I'm, I'm, I just finished an essay on that that I haven't published yet, but okay. basically it starts by doing one thing as well as you possibly can do it. And that becomes a ceremony mm. and then it radiates out into everything else. So really, whether it's washing the dishes or... Yeah, but it helps to kind of demarcate it away from the rest of life, you know, and make it like a special practice. Like, yeah, it could have a little altar, you know, and you light the candle just right, or you ring a chime just right, or you place the mm. things there exactly as they should be, mm. better than you have to for any rational purpose. Mm. And then you will feel that you are doing a ceremony. I'm thinking of the samurai culture, mm-hmm. like the tea ceremony, for example. You know, usually when we make tea, we just, I just, okay, I make it and I pour it and I don't really think about it. But yet the, the Japanese tea ceremony is infused with presence and mindfulness and attention. Right. What's the point? What's the point of that? Well, it is, uh, it radiates out into the rest of life. So it is like a, uh, like a seed crystal that you put in a solution and then the whole solution begins to crystallize. So you start to do other things with that same level of attentiveness and uh, devotion mm. and perfection better than they need to be done for any rational purpose that you're doing improperly. And what that speaks to me too, is like when I'm working, I'm working, I'm fully immersed in the work. Right. And then mm-hmm. when I'm with my family, I am fully with my family, fully immersed in the experience of being with my family. Right. And I know when I get those confused, suffering happens. Right. Right. Yeah. That's, that's one way to, to say it. Yeah. When there's overlap, when I'm thinking of work and I'm with my woman or when I'm trying to do my work or I'm in my work and yet my, maybe there's something happening or my attention's being drawn into the relationship. Like it it doesn't feel good when those things happen. So yeah. Yeah. Okay, Charles. Well, thank you so much again for coming on to Men This Way and sharing your wisdom and your insight and your honesty and transparency and I'm so on board. You have my support and I feel very much in kinship with you as we are speaking this 
new world of interbeing into being. Mm, thank you, Brian. Yeah. Yeah, thanks. I'm with you, man. Yeah, wonderful conversation. I really enjoyed it. Likewise. Thank you. Thank you. So I'm going to end this podcast a little bit differently than I normally do. But first, I want to thank Charles Eisenstein for coming on again after a red-eye flight. I can't stand red-eye flights. I never sleep well on them. And uh, I want to thank him for coming on just a few hours, getting off one of those. Again, you can find Charles Eisenstein at charleseisenstein.org. And we'll put all of that in the show notes at brianreeves.com slash podcast. But I want to end this episode a little differently because we didn't do the five key takeaways that I normally do. You can actually find those in part one of Charles' episode recording. But I want to share with you two of my key takeaways. Now there's a lot. And I know that as you've listened to this, maybe you will have gotten different things than, than I've gotten from this. But I want to share with you two key takeaways for me one that I'm still really working on and deepening in in my own life, and that's the the distinction between mind and heart. You know, I'm so caught up in strategy so much of my life. What do I think I need to do in order to accomplish X? And this is a theme that's been there throughout my life. I mean, when I managed a spiritual music band here to here many years ago, I was so caught up in making these guys famous and successful, and I brought so much stress to that experience as a result as well. And we had an amazing experience, but you know, the band we didn't make it, if you will. I mean, we were in the top 5% of bands, but it's only the top 0.1% that in terms of like CD sales and, and income, it's only the top 0.1% that actually make any livable money from music. So, you know, this has been a theme throughout my life of placing so much importance on strategy which is the domain of the mind, and it has its place. But what I've really grown to appreciate more and more, and Charles really helped just to ground this in for me, is that we're really living in a time of vast possibility. And you know, the internet has enabled what seems like randomness, this random effect that we just never know what the consequences of our actions, our creativity are going to be in, in ways that we've never really experienced before in all of human history. You know, I'm thinking of uh, Prince EA. I don't know if you all have seen any of his videos. Prince EA, I remember he had this huge breakthrough video that was basically just him walking to his car from the gym and his friend was videotaping him just talking about something uh, that was happening, some relevant uh, event that was happening at the time. And he was just wearing, a, I think he was like in a sweatshirt or maybe a tank top or something. Nothing produced in that video, nothing produced about it, just a rough cut video. And that video exploded. I mean, he was sharing really profound wisdom at a very difficult time, particularly for race relations in the United States. And as I went to research more of him, I remember seeing how he'd already created these really beautiful, like produced spoken word and music videos. And he was very, very talented. And yet it was that one three minute rough video that really put him on the map. And I've had that experience in my blogs and, and just writing from my heart. And you know, the blog that really went viral for me, Choose Her Every Day or Leave Her, I remember, well, actually, I don't remember 
even writing that blog. I was writing a lot of blogs and I remember I'd written some blogs and I was like, oh man, this is the one. I'd had a few blogs that maybe were read by maybe a million people or so. And I'd written a few other blogs. I was like, okay, this is the one that's going to blow up. This is the one that's going to go viral. I, I, this is so well written. And then nothing, crickets. And yet here's a blog that I don't even remember writing. It was just an expression of my heart, just something that I had to say on that particular day. And um, two months later, maybe three months later, it exploded. And I mean, a million people a day and more were reading that blog. And that changed the game for me. So I think this we're living in this age, this distinction between mind and heart and using the mind in service of the heart's wisdom. It's obviously something, a journey for each of us to go on and, and wrestle with. And I think it can't be understated how important that that awareness, to cultivate that awareness of what is my mind just telling me needs to happen? What's the, what is the strategy that I think will get me X and even if I get X, what will that really do for me? I don't know if you've ever had that experience of getting what you so thought you wanted only to experience how empty and meaningless it is to have it. I've experienced that multiple times. Um, so that's one of my key takeaways, really just deepening in that distinction between mind and heart and learning how to use the mind in service of the heart's wisdom rather than what we normally do and what we're taught in this culture to actually override anything the heart might have to say about the matter and you know just get a job just make sure you can pay your bills you know put away the guitar forget about going to art school you're never going to make any money with an art degree yeah so that's my key takeaway number 1 and number 2 my second key takeaway and this is that question that Charles invited us to explore. What do you care about? Or he, he framed it actually as a prayer. What do you care about? What do you care about? Show me what I care about. And that's really meaningful for me as well. And, and I was especially, you know, really appreciative of his answer about um, talking about my friend who's who's caught between that and that spot of, well, you know, I'm making good money doing something that I enjoy, but it ain't quite the it doesn't quite scratch that deep itch, but it does matter. And yet providing for his family. And, and um, I'm reminded of a client that I had. I did one session with this man years ago. I don't remember, remember how long ago. It was years ago. One of my coaching clients, I did this man a disservice, I believe. This is one of the, the mistakes, I'll, I'll use that word, mistakes I, I did in my coaching practice. This man had come to me. We only had one session. And he was going through an experience where his wife, he was essentially divorcing his wife and he was almost, it's almost like, you know, in retrospect, I wonder if he was having kind of a manic episode because he wanted to leave his high paying job for a defense contractor. Again, he didn't love it, but it was providing money and income for his family. And, but now, you know, he's going through a divorce. Everything was on the table and he was just kind of like, fuck it. And I'm so, I don't want to leave this. I want to be a writer. And I'm thinking about turning in my resume on Monday. And I remember in that, I just, you know, in my life journey, I've, I've been one to pretty much leap off of cliffs. As soon as I see a cliff, I'm like, yeah, let's leap off this and just see what happens. 
um, you know, when I left the military at 26 and just went traveling around the world. And, but you know, I never had a family. I didn't have kids. I didn't have those. I was only ever really, I've only ever really been responsible to my own well-being. And here this man was, he had a lot that he was responsible for in his life. And I remember, you know, just mirroring back to him. Wow. Yep. Sounds like, I mean, I'm just hearing confirmation that you, that, that, that you're excited to leave your job and, and nothing in you wants to stay. And I thought I was mirroring back to him what he cares about. But in retrospect, I realized I was just mirroring back to him kind of a moment of, of high excitement. And we didn't have a conversation about what does he really deeply care about. And I remember he left that. He didn't end up turning in his resignation. And then, you know, a couple months later, he was driving for Uber and living in a, a very tiny home that he wasn't excited about. And it was a really rough transition for him. And, um, you know, I don't think that any, there was anything wrong with that. I think that, you know, there's lessons in everything, kind of like, again, what Charles and I explored about what to say yes to, what to say no to. Whether you say yes or no is kind of a, a, a side effect or a side question. The meat is in what can you learn from this experience about yourself, about love, about maybe even about this distinction between mind and heart. But again, I'll never forget. That's one of my, the mistakes that I made in the past in my own coaching practice that certainly informs me today. I would, would help that man very, very differently and I think that's one of the questions that we would have spent a lot more time exploring is what do you care about? What do you deeply care about? Because I think when you get clear with what do you deeply care about and you discover, like, again, my friend or that man, well, I deeply care about my kids. I deeply care about making sure my kids are well cared for. Well, then you might find that staying in your job that maybe you don't love is actually a very noble and worthy path of heart. Like uh, Viktor Frankl wrote in his book, Man's Search for Meaning, your suffering becomes worthy. It becomes noble. You have a different relationship to this thing that you think you're not in alignment with, but actually when you really get beneath and explore what you care about, maybe you actually are. So anyway, that's just some insight into my uh, two of my big key takeaways from this episode Thank you for listening. Again, all of the links and resources, anything we discussed in this episode will be in the show notes at brianreeves.com slash podcast. And I want to invite you to email me to share with me, what did you get from this? What are your key takeaways? What did this inspire in you? Or what did this offend in you? Love to hear your feedback. You can email me at brian, it's brian with a Y, at brianreeves.com. That email comes right to me. I'd love to hear your feedback. And if you were served by this and think others should hear it, then please share this episode or just write a review on your favorite podcast app so that you too can lead more men this way. And don't forget to subscribe yourself while you're at it. I'm your thriving life and relationship coach, Brian Reeves. Until soon, keep your head up your breath relaxed and your thoughts inspired.